Thank you, everyone. Could you, uh, if you're on the end of the road, could you please pass the Bible down? Make sure we've all got a Bible. We're going to read together from Ephesians. We're going to read from the second chapter of Ephesians, which is page 1173. And just before we read, I want to say tonight, I want to talk about grace. Together we're going to consider God's grace to us, what his loving kindness towards us is like. And the passage we're about to read, it's really famous. You may know it really well. It's so rich. We're about to read 10 verses that you could spend 10 weeks on. Um, maybe I'm not going to be able to do them justice, but briefly as I, we study them, I just want to pray that this would be like a rich meal for us tonight, that God would nourish us, that God would shape us, that God would speak to us, that he'd transform us to be more like Jesus Christ. Um, let's pray together. Just as we open God's word, let's pray that God would move among us. Jesus, I thank you so much for who you are and what you do. Thank you that you are here tonight. Thank you that when we gather in your name, two or three of us, they are also. I thank you for your awesome power. And I pray now that that be so clearly and demonstrably at work amongst us tonight. Thank you for everything you've done in Jesus Christ. And thank you for your word. And I pray that as we open your word tonight, God, everything you've done and the riches of your love, your mercy, and your grace towards us would be so clear tonight. So Jesus, stir up our hunger now to hear you speak. Stir up our expectation and give us um, a humility to hear and receive what you're going to say to us. Amen. Amen. Let's read together. Well, I'm going to read. You're going to listen. Ephesians 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. There's so much to gleam from these amazing words. There's so much we could take. There's so much you could potentially preach on. But I want to talk about grace tonight. I want to talk about God's grace. Paul writes in verse 5, It's by grace you have been saved. In verse 7 he says, We've been made alive in order that God might show the amazing, incomparable, unfathomable riches of his grace. And then he says again in verse 8, We have been saved by grace through faith. And God's grace is at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. God's grace is at the very heart of what it means to be a follower of him. It's the foundation of everything. It's the beginning place of everything. Everything you do, whether you're planting a church or going to work or anything, starting a new job. Some of you are starting new jobs tomorrow, I know. The foundation of everything we do as we follow Jesus is grace. And we're going to consider it together tonight. And these verses that actually show us they don't just name that we've been saved by grace. They actually show us what God's grace is like. And we're going to consider that together. I want us to show us three things. The first is that God's grace to us is totally indispensable. 
God's grace to us is totally indispensable. As in, we cannot do without it. We cannot do without God's grace because we see what all humanity is like before we meet Jesus Christ. You can read with me. I've just read it. As for you, verse 1, Paul says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And the words transgression has a sense of crossing a line, crossing a boundary. That might be something intentionally or unintentionally, but it's something you've crossed over. The word for sin is actually a term from archery, and it means to fall short. So I don't know if you've ever done archery, but when you pull the bow back and you let it go, the arrow flies. But it's very possible, if you don't pull it hard enough, to miss the mark. And that's the idea of sin. It's missing the mark. It is missing the target. And in these things that we are described that we all do, we are shown to be dead. Not sick, not ill, not poorly, but dead. And this death is a spiritual death in the sense that we are alienated from God, who is the very source of all our life. And this might seem contradictory to us. What does it mean to say that we're dead? You know, we're here tonight. We got ourselves here. We're going to go do things later. We've ever seemed to very much be alive. You know, we're doing things with our life. How can we be dead? You know, it's a very active kind of death. But Paul acknowledges that. He says, uh, he says we're dead in transgressions and sins, and then continues in verse 2, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. And the word for live could be translated walk. Some translations do have it as walk. So Paul is saying you used to walk in the ways of the world. You used to walk as you followed the work of the enemy. You used to walk following your own desires. It refers to the flesh. That is just our sinful nature. So really, we're the walking dead. That's Scripture's assessment of us. We're the walking dead. See those three things that he says we follow? We follow the ways of the world. We follow the enemy, who, Satan, who's referred to as the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And then the flesh, which is our own sinful nature. And therefore, because of all this, can you feel the affront, the weight of these words? The last half of verse 3 reads, Like the rest... We were by nature deserving of wrath. Like the rest, we're deserving of wrath. What an assessment of humanity. What an assessment of all of us. Like the rest, and he's he's saying, we, like everybody else, all of humanity, we're deserving of this. What an assessment of the human race. I wonder if you've ever um, applied for a job. Most of you look like you have, so I'm going to assume that you know what a reference is. When you apply for a job, generally, what you do, and you can correct me because I might be wrong because, you know, you're all very educated. When you apply for a job, you, you do your application, then you ask, you name some people, and they follow up by saying the most wonderful things about you in the world and how you're going to be just a total hero and all that good stuff. Um, and if you want to give yourself um, a laugh, go onto YouTube and find the video of an Australian radio channel who decided to call up a total stranger, and say, and pretend to be, you know, hey, mate, I'm um, going in for a job interview. Uh, Would you mind giving me a reference? And this guy turns about to be a total hero, total stranger, and he says, yeah, of course, mate, what do you need? How long have I known you for? Ten years, right on. Where did I meet you? The footy club, brilliant, brilliant. I'm really sorry about the accent. But basically, then they call him back up, and this guy, in a very serious voice, pretends to be the guy who's just done the job interview. We've met a very good candidate, and we'd love to hear you know, everything you know about him. He's like, oh, yeah, no, he's such a good guy. And I've known him for two, I mean, I've known him for 10 years. And he goes on and he gives the best description you've ever heard about anybody. 
It makes them sound great. And then you can see the, um, it's true because the DJs just cannot believe how good this guy's doing. And he gives a glowing report. He gives a glowing reference. But what's our reference? What's our character assessment? What is said about us? As for you, you were dead. As for you, you were by nature deserving of wrath. Can you feel the force of those words? What an affront to human achievement, to human excellence, to humankind. Because of our very sinful nature, without Jesus we all stand under the judgment of God. Even we deserve it. Now we must recognize that God's wrath is not incompatible with his love. Paul moves freely from God's wrath to love from verses 3 to 4 with no embarrassment or contradiction. God's wrath is his personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil, his settled refusal to compromise with it, and his resolve instead to condemn it. And God is worthy of all praise because he will bring justice and judgment against evil. He's worthy of praise because of that. The problem we have, I think, in the affront of this passage is the the idea that God's wrath might be directed at us. We might want to say, look, actually, we're okay. I'm okay. I'm generally a good person. In fact, isn't humanity on the whole quite good? You know, we're, we're those made in the image of God anyway, aren't we? But the danger of that attitude is that we want to justify ourselves and we see that God's, in the, with that attitude, God's grace is not indispensable. God's grace is not indispensable, i.e. we couldn't do without it. But we're not just ill in our sins, says the word. We're not just sick in our sins, we're dead. We didn't just need medicine or a bit of help, we needed a resurrection. Let me explain. If, you, if you're ill and you need healing, well, first of all, there are levels of how ill you are. You know, you might have just a touch of man flu, which for some people is very serious. Or you might have something far more serious. So there's levels of how ill you can be. And then if you are ill, and actually, you know, you need to do something about it, you've got to go visit the doctor. So there's something for you to do. And then you've got to do what the doctor says. So, you know, whether that's taking some medicine or some rest or exercise or whatever it is. So if you're ill, there's degrees of how ill you can be. And then there's something for you to do. But if you're dead... However you died, you're still dead. There are no levels of deadness. You are deceased. You are ended. You've shuffled off this mortal coil and gone to join the choir invisible, as the Monty Python quote says. If you're dead, there's nothing you can do about it. You can't raise yourself from the dead. Someone else has to help you. And God's word says that we are not ill in our sins, calling for Dr. God, saying, I need a booster jab, I need some tablets. No, instead we have to come to Jesus Christ and say, I cannot raise myself. I am dead in my sin, and I need your resurrection power. You see, because if we believe then we're just ill in our sin, then there are degrees of how sinful, how ill we are. And then there's also something we might be able to do about it. Well, I can just apply some good works. Maybe if I start being a good person, I won't be so ill, so sinful anymore. And of course, that's just a way, that's just an attitude that can lead to such judgment, such comparison. Because we might want to compare ourselves against whoever it is. It might be someone in prison. We say, well, at least I'm not the person in prison for murder on Skid Row. You know, I'm doing all right on my own. See, but if we think that, then again, there's degrees 
of how sinful we are, and there's contribution. In other words, God's help and his grace is not absolutely indispensable. Maybe some people need it more than others. But if we are dead in our sins to God and need to be resurrected, then the salvation, the grace of God is absolutely indispensable to us all. We're all dead to God, spiritually dead, separated, cut off, alienated. The good people and the bad people, there are no degrees. There's no levels of contribution. There are not some people who need a bit of inspiration or a boost and some people who need a born-again experience. We're all dead and therefore God's grace to us is absolutely, absolutely indispensable. But God's grace is not just indispensable, it's incomparable. There's nothing like it. Because there we were, sleeping the sleep of death, and God came and woke us up. You can read with me from verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Paul has just delivered this devastating description of every human who's ever lived. And he's portrayed every person's plight. But now we see that God has graciously saved us and brought us the very thing we couldn't do. Even when we were dead, by grace through faith, God made us alive. This is the father running to the prodigal son while the prodigal son is still far off. This is what Paul talks about in Romans 5 where he says, even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even we were dead and therefore totally powerless in our sin, totally unable to help, to help ourselves, God woke us up. And this is not our achievement, but God's wonderful achievement. Why did he do it? His love. Verse 4, but because of his great love for us. So God saved us out of the depths of his character and his nature, his love. How did he, God do it? How did God save us? By grace. And you can see that Paul almost interrupts himself, the flow of what he's saying. God made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions, and then he has to add in, it is by grace you have been saved. And he'll do it again when he comes to verse 8. Some commentators suggest this is like worship overflowing from Paul. He just can't help himself. It's underscoring everything he says. He has to affirm it. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so no one can boast. And God's grace, to use Paul's word from verse 7, is incomparable. He talks about the incomparable riches of God's grace. There's nothing like it. But this passage shows us it, it, what God's grace is like. It unpacks it for us. It develops it. We see uh, it in the words that are used to describe God's character. God is described as the one who has love for us. God is described as the one who is rich in mercy. God is the God who is kind. It describes God's kindness to us. God has expressed his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. That we get a picture of what God's grace is like. But the greatest sense, the greatest understanding we can have is when we see what God has done for us. Verses 5 and 6, we see that God has done three things for us. We see that God has made us alive with Christ. He has raised us up with Christ. And he has seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms. So God has made us alive. He's raised us up. And he has seated us in the heavenly realms. And some of us might think, you know, maybe that's foreign language. What does this mean? What does it mean we're seated? What does this mean we've been raised up? But we understand it when we realize that this is what God did for Jesus. Jesus Christ was dead. And God raised him 
made him alive and exalted him. If we skip back to chapter 1, you can go to verse 19. Paul is describing God's power. And he says that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Can you hear the parallel of language? He exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Jesus Christ was dead. He died on a cross, but God made him alive. He raised him up. He seated him at his right hand. And by grace, God does the same thing for us when we believe. Though we were dead, God makes us alive. He raises us up and he seats us with him just as he did for Jesus Christ. And what is true for Jesus becomes true for us. But the great wonder of this and God's grace is understood is when we compare our status to Jesus Christ. Did you notice the way Paul was describing him there, what I just quoted from chapter 1? He's describing Jesus as the one who above every name and every authority and every power, the one who is worthy of all praise and glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Jesus is above everything. He's worthy of every praise, every glory. He's deserving of it. Jesus deserves our lives. He deserves our praise. He deserves every praise. Everything is for him and to him and through him. But we, Paul says, as for you, he says, you are dead and you are deserving of wrath. So Jesus, deserving of glory and praise and worship and wonder, and us, deserving of wrath. And yet we who are deserving of wrath receive what the one who is deserving of all praise gets. We receive what Jesus gets because of grace. This is grace. And the past tense of this being made alive and raised, that really matters. Because it says we have been seated in the heavenly places with Christ. And you might say, what? What does that mean? Well, it's not literally, but it's legally. We're legally in heaven. This means we're as loved, we're as accepted, and we're as delighted in as Christ Jesus is by his Father. And when it says we've been raised with Christ, again, it's not literally, but we get so united with Christ. The word is in, the phrase is in Christ. We are in Christ. We're so united with him that what is true for Jesus becomes true for us. And just because, just as Jesus was raised, so we too shall be raised. So Paul can say with all certainty, you have been raised. Because what is true for Christ becomes true for us. This means that when you become a Christian, when you give your yes to Jesus, when you believe in Christ, you are united with him. So that everything he has ever done and everything he deserves becomes ours. This means we are as honored, we are as loved, we are as accepted as his actions deserve. Not our own. Not our own actions. Not our actions of sin and trespassing. But his actions of laying down his life. His actions. We get what he deserved. This is grace. We were dead, but we've been raised to life. We were headed down under wrath, but we've been lifted up. We are wandering, that walking word. We're walking in our own way, but we've been seated with Jesus Christ. God's grace is incomparable. There's nothing like it, because we get what we don't deserve. We get what Jesus deserves. God's grace is indispensable. We cannot do without it. God's grace is incomparable. There's nothing like it. And God's grace is all in Christ. God's grace is all in Christ. Maybe I could have gone with a different word there. I've gone with two words that both have I-N, so maybe I could have gone with indescribable or inexpressible. 
you know, God's grace is, <coughs> excuse me, so amazing, so wonderful, maybe we can't even understand it, comprehend it. And is in a sense that's true. Yeah, we don't, can't fully portray God's grace. But Paul says in verse 7 that the riches of God's grace have been expressed to us in Christ Jesus. So we understand what God's grace is like in him. It's all in him. And if you'll notice, in Christ also begins with I-N. So boom, nailed it. There we go. Point three. God's grace is in Christ. It's all, all about Jesus Christ. If you're around church a long time, you'll hear people talking about Jesus Christ a lot. And it's all about him. He became a human and took on our poverty that we might become rich. I love that God is described as being rich in mercy, that he, he is abundantly rich in grace. And this one who is so rich in grace and rich in mercy gives up his wealth and takes on our poverty that this great exchange might happen, that we might receive his riches. He lived a perfect life and he died a death on a cross. And on the cross, it said that God laid on him the iniquity, the sin of everybody. He made him who knew no sin to become sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And God's grace is in Christ because it's all about believing in him. Verse 8, Paul says, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. Do you notice that? Through faith. He said it once, he says it's by grace you've been saved, and then he repeats himself. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and he adds that. And those two words, through faith, simply mean that all of God's grace, this incomparable thing, this thing we cannot do without, all of this is received by simply believing in Jesus Christ. By simply saying, God, I believe that you were who you said you were, and that you died for me, that you gave your life for me. And that's it. That's how you get the amazing riches of God's grace. It's by belief. And with belief comes repentance, as in saying, God, I'm really sorry for everything I've done, for my sins and my trespasses. I don't know why I'm speaking like a northerner tonight. Trespasses. Trespasses. We're in the south. Such an helpful addition. Right, back to the notes. Um, God's word says this, we aren't saved by anything we do. We're not saved by anything we do. There's one uh, phrase I heard from a spoken word one time, that our good works are like, just like spraying perfume on a corpse. Wow, what a vivid image. The things we do don't count for anything. They don't raise us up. They can't resurrect us. We're not saved by anything we do. Because Paul says if we, if we were, then we'd have something to brag about. Verse 9, it's not by works, so that no one can boast. There's no boasting before Jesus Christ. There's no bringing, hey God, this is what I've done, I'm so good, aren't I good, check me out. And this is both the heart of the Christian message. This is the very good news that we have to proclaim. This is the very good news that uh, St. Peter's Church in Vauxhall is going to proclaim, that those churches in that area are proclaiming. This is the Christian message. But it's also, I think, one of the hardest things to accept. What do you mean we're saved just through faith? What? what? We run Alpha. We're running it, we run it three times a year. We're running it, in two, running it in two weeks' time. But on every Alpha course I've ever been on, which is this chance to explore faith, and maybe some of you who are here tonight, you need to do this. You've been thinking through these kind of questions. But every time we talk about grace, it's very hard for people to grapple with. What do you mean you could just say Sorry. What about the person who lives their whole life doing exactly what they want? You mean they could just say sorry on their deathbed and that's it? And my response to this is always, I know, look, I know, how, wow, yeah. Because grace confounds the way we think. 
Grace confronts the way we think. Grace goes against everything we've ever been told in the world, which is that you must earn your way. Grace says that we're saved by what Jesus does and not by what we do. And we get accepted, loved, and valued, and raised up because of what Jesus did and not by what we do. Now, don't misunderstand me. We're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. We're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. This passage says what we're saved from, i.e. the wrath of God. It says what we're saved to, i.e. heavenly places, heaven. And then it says what we're saved for. Read with me, verse 10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You could preach a whole sermon on that line. What an amazing bit of scripture that is. What an amazing truth that is. We are God's handiwork. We're his masterpiece. We're the thing he has made. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God's grace is in Christ. So he expresses his grace to us in Christ by dying for us. And when we believe that, we get born again. And then we get created in Christ. We get recreated. We get born again. And this comes with a purpose. God has saved you for a purpose. He has prepared things for you to do. He has prepared good works, good things for you to do. That thing for us to do, that phrase, do you remember I said earlier that the word live could be translated as walk? Because it comes, that's the Hebrew sense of the word. Well, it's true for this as well. That's the same word for us to do. So this is pretty clear. It's saying, you once walked in the ways of the world, but now God in his grace is calling you to walk in his good works. But here's why we need grace, and here's why grace is amazing. We don't always do it. Despite the fact we get saved and raised, despite the fact given a new name, despite the fact, as in, we're called the children of God, despite all the amazing stuff God for us, simply when we believe and say, God, I trust in everything in you and your finished work on the cross, despite the fact God does everything and he brings us back to life, we still will want to go our own way. In fact, the description at the start of this passage about those who are dead in transgressions and sins and doing what the world says and doing what the enemy says and then doing what their flesh says, that could actually sound like a few of us. I certainly know that in my own life. Paul, Paul, wrote, Paul knew this. He says, I constantly do the things I don't want to do and the things I do want to do, I don't do. I don't understand it. This is why we need grace, because despite the fact that everything God does for us, we still will choose to go our own way. The difference is it doesn't disqualify us. The difference is it does not separate us from God. Nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Nothing in creation, nothing outside of us, nothing inside of us. Nothing that happens around us, nothing that we do inside of us. Nothing can separate us from God. And this means a few things. This means the end of pride. Because if we're dead, then we couldn't save ourselves, and only Jesus could. And we need to give up saying, I'm going to get right with God myself. But this is also the end of shame. So often what we do can lead us into shame because it leads us to a place where we think that somehow God is displeased with us, that he has cast us out once again. God says, no, you are mine. I have redeemed you. Nothing can separate you from my love. You're seated with me in heavenly places. And you will be forever and ever until eternity. Paul says, basically, God is going to make up to us for the rest of eternity. He says, in the coming ages, 
You know that in verse 7? In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. We can only grasp God's grace partly now. We see, but through a mirror darkly, says one translation of another verse. We see God, but in part, but one day we will know in full. And in the coming ages, i.e. beyond this, into eternity, God is going to continue to show us his grace. But it's not from what we do. It's all from what Jesus Christ has done. It's like this. Um, who here loves Amazon? Yeah, I love Amazon. That was a very quick hand back at the back there. Um, I particularly love Amazon Prime. Um, you get things overnight or sometimes on the same day. Recently ordered something and a woman in her own car showed up in her own clothes and delivered me something. It was very strange. But that's what you can do now. This is the future. Well, the stuff we order comes to us, but sometimes it sounds like this. Have you ever received something that was broken? What do you do? Another hand. Wow, you guys are so into this. There was a hand up at the back there. Yes, I'm so sorry. What happens when you get something that's broken? You say, well, that's not the thing I paid for. I had to break a cup this morning to do this. Jago, I'm so sorry. I will replace it. I was literally in the back of the church. I threw a mug on the ground. Anyway, when you get something and you buy it and it's broken, you go, that's not the thing I paid for. But really, our lives and all the good works and all the bad works sound like this before God. We come to God in brokenness. We don't come to God in strength. We come to God in weakness. We come to God as those who are dead. And all our good works and all our bad works end up sounding a lot like that. But whereas we would say, that's not the brokenness I paid for, Jesus, because of everything he does on the cross, when we come to him with our brokenness, says, that is the brokenness I paid for. That is the brokenness that my body was broken for. My blood has covered you. And I'm making you whole. And one day I will make you fully whole. And nothing in all creation can separate us from that kind of love. And that is what God's grace is like. It takes broken people and it makes them totally new. And once they come back to him again saying, God, I'm still so broken, God says, I know and I still love you and you're still mine and nothing in all creation can separate you from me. I've purchased you. I've created you in me to do good things, to flee from the bad things and come to me again and do the good things. It is by grace we have been saved, says Paul. It is by grace we have been saved. Through faith, and this is not from ourselves, so that no one can boast. Not by works. It's a gift from God. It's a gift from God, and so often we have such trouble receiving gifts or compliments. Have you ever seen someone try to receive a compliment? Sometimes they'll just push it away. And God says to us, my, my grace to you is like a gift, and I give it to you freely. And that brings up so many things, what I was talking about, about trying to justify ourselves and trying to, we want to pay our way. But instead, we must say to God again, I receive your gift. I receive it. I lay down my life. And receiving it means just saying in faith, God, I'm so sorry for everything I've ever done. I trust and I believe in you. So do you do that to Jesus? Will you receive again his gift of grace? Maybe you've done it for a thousand times. You've heard this message a thousand times. But we all need to do it. This is the foundation of our whole Christian walk. And everything we do has to come from this place. Otherwise, it's all just about earning God's love. Will you again receive God's grace? 
Will you again receive the gift of his rich, inexpressible, incomparable, inconceivable grace tonight? Why don't we pray together? God, I thank you for everything that you have done for us. I thank you that you're rich in mercy. I thank you that you're great in love. I thank you that you have incomparable riches of grace. And I thank you that it's by grace we've been saved if we're trusting in you. And I pray that we would live out this message. I pray that we would live from grace and not seeking approval, but living from it, God. And I pray that everything I've said tonight that is from you, God, I pray that would stick with us, that would shape us, that would mold us, that would transform us. But I pray that everything that is of me, I pray it just fall away. I pray that we would be those who are living and loving you for your grace. We thank you, Jesus, for everything you've done for us. We thank you, God. We bless you. We praise you for it. And now I ask that as we take communion together, Jesus, as we remember your work on the cross, you'd help us worship you. You'd help us uh, be in awe and wonder of you again. And you'd help us accept this gift that you give us, God. In Jesus' name, amen.